Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Navaris Darson. I tell him, like, no, I don't want to be serviced, but I'll let you see me naked. Um, it's the least I can do. Um, <laughs> what a gift. Um, that and more. But before that, I want to tell you that the next Risk live stream show is May 8th at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Holy shit, we are on such a roll with these live streams. The one we did this past weekend was so much fun. Every one of them has been so much fun, so inspiring, such great stories. We're thrilled. We're doing these for audiences of a few hundred people or several hundred people every time. So it's a really dynamic way to feel like you're in a communal experience. Like it's kind of shocking how connected it does make you feel that someone is in their apartment or home speaking directly to you, telling you these very intimate stories. And there's hundreds of folks out there watching and commenting and sharing with friends. It's just something not to be missed. If you've been to one before, make sure to spread the word to your friends. Again, you can pitch us your stories at wristshow.com slash submissions, and you could be a part of one of these things. And you can always get your tickets to these live streams at wristshow.com slash tour. Again, that's Friday, May 8th, 9 p.m. Eastern, and the tickets are wristshow.com slash tour. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Now here's the show.
Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Eddie Harris behind me now. And we're calling this week's episode By Chance Five Fantastic Stories about unexpected, unlikely situations in people's lives. And you know what? I'm I'm just so thrilled with how strong we have been staying here at Risk and the Story Studio. Our episodes recently have been fantastic. Our live streams have been wonderful. Our workshops have been terrific. We're just putting so much love and energy and heart and soul into the show during this strange time. And you guys, the fans, have really been showing up for it, coming to the live streams, talking things up online, and contributing over at Patreon. I mean, I'm not going to lie, as fantastic as things have been going artistically with the show... Financially, the show is still, you know, in in a very scary place. So we are so, so deeply grateful. I need to give some Patreon shout-outs here to people who have given $25 or more in the past week or so. Cassandra Kahn, David Kinsel, Jacob Shields, Diane DeStefano, and Tony France. Thank you all so very much. It means so much to us. There's a new interview with Ray Christian up on Patreon now. There's also a new video check-in from me, just me making a video about how I'm doing these days. And a new bonus story is going up from one of our all-time favorites, Jackie Cation. That story sounds a little bit something like this. My father, uh, love him to death, uh, but he's a lot like radiation. We never saw him when we were little, but he affected our lives. (laughs) (laughs) Jackie is always wonderful to hear from and she is this week's bonus story we put up a bonus story every single week at patreon.com slash risk go over there and become a patron if you're not one already because we desperately need the help from our fans and we greatly appreciate it and there is so much so much to find there that you don't find here on the free podcast Another thing I have been absolutely loving, loving, loving to do (laughs) recently are these Cameo videos. If you don't know, Cameo is a website where public figures can make little video messages for fans. You go on there, you request a video message from me, I'll make it and send it to you. Could be totally ridiculously silly, could be completely sincere. You can tell me, you know, the vibe you want and what you'd like me to say or anything like that. You can send one as a gift to a friend. Go on over to cameo.com slash the Kevin Allison and get one of these messages from me. I have been having a blast doing these. Now let's get to the stories. In a little bit, the return of Dana Gould to the show. Dana wrote for The Simpsons for many years and has since been his voice acting and his comedy, his writing, his stand-up comedy is all over the place. He did a story for us, I think it was at San Francisco Sketchfest, or maybe it was the Los Angeles show years ago. It's an older recording. And before that, we're going to hear from one of you, one of our fans, Elizabeth Willis, sent us a lovely little anecdote. But before that, we're going to hear a story from Navaris Darson. 
Navares is an actor and a writer based in Los Angeles. You can find him on all the socials at Navares Darson. This was recorded at the Virgil in Los Angeles just before we stopped appearing live in rooms with audiences. Here is Navares now with a story we call Fantasy Guy. I'm black and gay. Surprise. Woo! Uh, you need to know that because it's very different from being white and gay. Um, oh, it got quiet. Um, uh, in my experience as a gay black man, I'm often fetishized or completely ignored. And it's hard for some gay men to think of me as a person or a viable dating option. Uh, when I moved to L.A. at the age of 22 to pursue acting, I was actually surprised at how invisible I felt in the gay community. I would even drive to the gay uh, Starbucks in West Hollywood and just sit there and just, just hoping that some handsome gay man would notice me. Eventually, after a year or so, uh, I lost my virginity to a guy on Craigslist. Don't recommend it. Um, but besides that, I hadn't dated anyone and I hadn't had that boyfriend that I really wanted. Um, so after four years of living in L.A., like I had so much heartbreak that eventually I went numb. I just didn't feel anything at all. And to make matters worse, instead of acting, I was selling cupcakes at a bake shop called Crumbs. Anybody go to Crumbs? <laughs> Woo! No, um, because they're out of business. Um, <laughs> For selling cupcakes that they said were fresh and made daily that weren't really made fresh daily. Um, and that was a fine job. I love the people, but it wasn't my dream. So I'd go to work, then I'd come home, and I would watch Queer as Folk, this TV show about four gay men who were living the life that I desperately wanted to live. And so one night I'm watching Queer as Folk, and the character of Brian goes to a gay bathhouse. And a gay bathhouse is a place where gay men can go and have gay sex with other gay men. And I was like, what? Because I didn't know this place existed. And like, it looked amazing. Like the interior was like all sexy and sleek. And it was like black marble and columns and like hot guys walking around looking for action. And I was like, yeah, I want to go to there, you know? So I go online and I, I find a gay bathhouse downtown and I go to the website and there are these live performers, which is like a bonus. And I see this one guy named Hugo Boss. All right. <laughs> you laugh. Uh, it's clearly not his real name, but I don't care because he's beautiful. Like he looks like a sexy Italian version of Prince Eric from Little Mermaid. Um, like just a long face and like smoldering eyes and that swoop of hair. And like I remember seeing Little Mermaid when I was about like seven or eight. And like I wasn't like quite gay yet, but I remember like looking at him being mesmerized. And I'm not saying that the, that the Little Mermaid made me gay, but also I wanted to be a part of that world. You know what I'm talking about? So I see like this Italian Prince Eric and I'm like, no, I have to see him in person. I wait three weeks until he's performing and I work my eight hour shift at Crumb's Bake Shop and then I drive to that bathhouse to see Hugo Boss perform live. 
Uh, so I go to this bathhouse, and it's different. It's not like the bathhouse on Chorus Folk. Like, it's not as glamorous, but it's not sleazy. Like, there's porn playing everywhere. Um, but, like, even though you know that gay sex is happening, you can't smell it. So it's like, it's classy enough. Um, so I walk inside and I go to the locker room to change because everybody at a gay bathhouse wears a white towel. Just etiquette. And as I'm putting on this white towel, uh, a squat, heavy set, older, Middle Eastern man uh, comes up to me. And he, his name is Sal. And he says, do you party? And I'm a dare kid. So I go, no, I don't party. And he is mortified. Like, he is so embarrassed that he, that he implied that I did drugs. And I feel so bad now that I'm taking care of him. I'm like, no, it's fine. Like, I could party. You had no idea. Um, and he's like, he's, he's like, no, no, that was so rude of me. And I was like, no, I sold cupcakes. Uh, until you see a mother of two who can't get rid of other cupcakes, you have not seen rude. Um, <laughs> And I'm like, no, trust me, you're fine. And like, I calm him down, and then I go to explore. And I make my way down to the basement, where there's this like sexy, dark, like underground sex labyrinth. And I'm walking through this black maze, and I see guys like fooling around. They look nothing like the guys on Queer as Folk. Like, they're... <laughs> you get it. Um... <laughs> Like, they're older, and they're flabby, and they kind of look like the Pillsbury Doughboy if he had just been, like, worn down by life, you know? And, like, it's kind of, like, sprouted hair everywhere. Um, And I don't judge it. It's just, like, not my thing, like, to each their own. Um, So I'm like, let me leave this scene and see what's upstairs. So I make my way upstairs, and that's where, like, I realize the action happens. There's this long hallway, and there's, like, doors, uh, and, and, like, guys leaning in the doorway. And I'm walking down this hallway, and I feel like these hungry eyes on me as I make my way to uh, the lounge. Like that hallway is where like guys can rent rooms to like hook up with other guys. And I'm not, I'm not there to have sex. I'm there to see Hugo Boss, period. <laughs> so I go to the lounge and I'm sorry, I'm laughing already because you don't know why yet. Um, I go... <laughs> I go to the lounge and uh, the movie musical Mamma Mia is blaring on a TV because it ain't a gay bathhouse unless they playing a musical, baby. Um, I was like, what is that? And then I finally make it to the stage. All right, so this is where Hugo Boss is going to perform, and there are already like guys who like who, who, who are like taking their seats, and I sit down front row because I want to be where the action is. And eventually the show starts, and like this techno music starts pumping, and Hugo Boss comes out wearing a tank top and like these sexy pants, and like he starts to like dance and like get undressed, and he's looking at me every now and then, and he's smiling, and I can tell that he likes what he sees. And I'm like, this is what okay. Hugo so he takes the tank off and he's down to his underwear and now he's starting to like work the crowd and he dances over to me and like I can touch him like I'm touching Prince Eric slash Hugo Boss and it's, his, he's so muscular and firm and it's amazing and he leans over he puts his mouth close to my ear and he whispers you are so beautiful I could not even I never in a million years thought that Prince Eric would call me beautiful and it was happening and then it got better because he went back on stage got fully naked and he jacked off in front of everybody but it felt special like it was just for me you know because we had a moment 
And then he like grabs his thong and goes, that's my show! And he runs off through a red curtain backstage. And so after the show, like I find out where his dressing room is because I'm savvy. And I wait casually outside of it. And he comes up and like, oh my gosh, uh, your show was really incredible and you are really hot. And he's like, yeah, you're super hot too. And I was like, what? Stop it. What's happening? Um, and we trade phone numbers. Woo! Um, sad single woo and um and then he like he kisses me twice before he leaves like on the cheek but it counts all right like it it made a difference and i'm on cloud nine and i'm going to the locker room to like change and leave because my night cannot get any better and then i see this guy in a doorway in his cell the guy who asked me if i like to party and he is not as happy as I am. He actually looks really sad. He hasn't had any luck tonight. And so I like go over to him and I like I talk to him a little bit. And he's so sweet and kind and super nice. And at the end of it, like we're kind of wrapping up and he asks if I will go into his room um, and if he can service me. And I don't want to be serviced. I just wanted to see Hugo uh, dance and perform. But I recognize something in Sal, like that heartbreak that I know so well of like not being recognized by people. So even though I don't want to blowy, I tell him, like, no, I don't want to be serviced, but I'll let you see me naked. Um, it's the least I can do. Um, <laughs> what a gift. Um, so, and it is. Like, we'll talk after the show, but it really is. Um, so I go into his room and I sit down in this black room there's like, like a white bed and uh, there's like some soft orange light and like the soft blue light from the porn playing on the TV under the ceiling like semi-romantic uh, and Sal closes the door and he walks inside and I take off my towel and he lies down and he puts his head on my lap and I'm not worried because he's been so sweet and kind the entire time. And I start to just kind of stroke his cheek and run my hands through his hair. And he kisses the inside of my thigh. And he starts to reminisce out loud about when he was seven or eight. And he was living in the Middle East. His family owned a servant. And it was very common in the Middle East. And the servant was a dark man like me, a black man like me. And when he was seven or eight, he used to go into that man's room and he would see the man naked. And he didn't remember if anything sexual ever happened, but whenever he thought about that time in his life, he felt this sense of happiness and peace. And he then told me that he had an ex-wife, and he had two kids, and none of them knew that he was gay, and the bathhouse was the only place where he felt like he could be himself. Once he got done telling his story, I, um, I tilted his chin up, and I lifted his head, and I kissed him just to say thank you for being so vulnerable and for sharing a story with me. And then we parted ways. And then I never saw Sal again. I did text Hugo Boss uh, uh, a few days later. And we talked a little bit, but we also, like, we never, like, met up or dated, which is fine. It wasn't something that was supposed to happen. But I saw him 11 years later, a few months ago, at the Gay and Lesbian Center. And so, like, I'm just sitting there uh, waiting for my appointment, and he walks in, and he's, I'm far enough away where he doesn't see me, but I recognize him as soon as he walks through the door. Like, this is Prince Eric, and he's still alive. Um, <laughs> and he's still very handsome, but also was like, I see him for what he really is now. Like, years ago at the bathhouse, he was just a dancer who was doing his job. 
And like he gave me something to look forward to, which was great. And he gave me a boost of self-confidence, which I really needed. But it was never supposed to be anything more than that. Like he wasn't this ultimate fantasy guy. He was just a person like me, you know. And I realized that, you know, we're all just people just walking through mazes and going in and out of rooms and just leaning in doorways, hoping that somebody sees us and shows us a little bit of kindness and gives us a brief moment of peace and happiness. Thank you. So my housemate and I don't really interact too much. We live uh, in a house together and he is from Czechoslovakia and is a cab driver and aside from when he goes out to get beers from the shop, we don't really have much um, interaction. So recently, since the quarantine started, we've got this new thing to bond over because he got a call in February to take this elderly woman to hospital. And um, again, received a call just a week before London went fully into lockdown. And it was this woman, Rosemary, who was calling to say that she'd, she was in this pickle because she had run out of everything except water and shopping, uh, washing up liquid, which she was now using as shower gel. You know, she was so scared and she had no one else to call. And she suddenly thought of this nice cab driver. And so she called him and said, could he help? And he said, of course, you know, give me a shopping list I'll go and get it for you and he mentioned this to me in passing and I said to him well why don't you also offer her my number in case there's some way I can support her which he did since then we've been in lockdown and I've been speaking to this woman probably once a day except for on Passover when you know and I told her all about my Jewish customs and all of this and it's great in a way like she paints this very vivid picture of her life and I think it's useful for her to be able to sort of release and and rant a bit to me you know she talks about the very incompetent um, woman at her doctor's surgery the receptionist Belinda who has a bad attitude and we call her bothersome Belinda (laughs) and um, and there's you know there's the couple the 60 year old couple downstairs who are far younger than her and stay up all hours talking and smoking and she refers to the wife as the little dumpy redhead (laughs) is such an unkind way to speak about someone but you know she's she's not in a great position so I'll allow her this you know this rant and I'm imagining I'm trying to imagine what she's like because you know we've created this sort of pen pal ship you know over the phone and I have never met her and she's never met me and I know that from my housemate she's quite small she's about my height which is five foot and She's got a, a large hump on her back from, you know, what she's told me and what my housemates told me. And she's not got any teeth. And um, and that, I think, impacts her voice because she has that, you know, quintessential old lady voice, you know. Um, oh, hello, Elizabeth. How are you today? Oh, yes, yes. Not bad, not bad. Well, you know, Belinda, she's really rude to me again on the phone when I called the doctor's surgery earlier. Um <laughs> this quarantine it's a bizarre moment in life but if the best that can come out of it is this new friendship with rosemary then i'll have benefited in some way from it and i I hope she would feel the same too 
I'm gonna stand here. I'm not gonna stand on the stage. Down here, I feel more like your RA. How are you kids? Uh, if anybody wants to rap. I'm trying a new thing. I think it's gonna catch on. It's called tucking your shirt into your pants. The hair bun finally put me to the edge and I went, I'm just going all the way back. I'm gonna start tucking my shirts back in and uh, I'm gonna reject it all. I wanted to talk to you tonight in a way that I hope I don't get any laughs and therefore trick you into thinking that what I'm saying is important. <laughs> I was watching the footage of the hurricane. I rescue animals and rescue to a lesser degree people. Those extreme situations humanize us and bring out the best in people. And it reminded me of one of my favorite quotes by Winston Churchill, which is that you can always count on Americans to do the right thing after they've tried every other option. <laughs> and it's true. And he had another quote that means a lot to me, and it's what I wanted to talk about tonight, which is that success is going from failure to failure gracefully. In 1993, when most of you were just getting over being your father's jizz, <laughs> I was a hot comic. I was a very exciting, talented new face. Me and two other comedians were flown to Chicago to audition for Saturday Night Live, which was a popular television show at the time. The three of us knew each other, we flew out together, and I went on first, and I had the set of my life. I moved the building. It was one of those just everything clicks and you do something amazing. And then the other guy went up and bombed. And then the third guy went up and did okay. And we're flying home sitting in a three row on the plane. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm gonna get on Saturday Night Live. And I immediately go to, in my idiot brain, should I buy boxes? Do I have to move? Should I sublet my apartment? What about my books? Like I go right to the most ridiculous minutia. And I'm looking at the other two guys thinking, Chris Rock, Adam Sandler, you'll get your time. This is my time. Don't get too close to my exhaust. I tell that story to people and they go, oh, that's awful. And they go, nah, not really. It's not awful. Because I didn't get on Saturday Night Live that December, instead of being at Saturday Night Live, I went to a Christmas party at Kathy Griffin's house. And this is like seven faces ago. And, <laughs> and I love Kathy. I've known Kathy forever. She's terrific. And I met this woman at the party, and we went out to dinner, and then we started to go out on a couple of dates, and you know, it's like nothing's gonna happen, we're just gonna keep it cash, no big deal. But after a while, it's like, this is kinda silly, I'm always at your house, you're always at my house, why don't we just get one house together and just live there? And, but that's, you know, that's great, we're living together, not a heavy deal, we should get a dog, it's a cute dog. Let's get the dog. We'll live in this house, we'll get a dog. And outside of that, no heavy deal. We're gonna keep it casual. We should buy a house because we are throwing our money away, renting a house. And the dog, I've noticed, seems to have leveled out intellectually. 
Um, we should get a dog that would learn how to talk and drive a car when it's older. And the next thing you know, without any great plan, it's three o'clock in the morning on Christmas Eve, and you've just smashed your thumb trying to put together Cinderella's magical talking vanity. That's how it happens. And I wouldn't have had any of that had I gotten on Saturday Night Live and got to play Captain Underwear in a sketch. What happens is things that you think are important get kicked away for stuff that's really important. It was May of 2003, and my wife and I were in a hotel room, we're in the lobby of a hotel in Chengdu, China. And we were there with eight other young couples. And our guide says, um, okay, go up to your rooms and settle in. And then at four o'clock, we're going to meet in the conference room on the third floor and you'll get your children. We didn't have any children. We'd been filling out paperwork for a year, but we didn't have any hands-on experience. And so we just went up to the hotel room and sat there and we walked into the room and there was a crib in the room. And we just looked at this empty crib and thought, well, in an hour and a half, we're going to be parents. What do you think? And it was the craziest hour and a half of our lives. And we liked it so much, we did it again the next year. We did it again after that. Our first response was, we wanted to get one of everybody. We wanted to get, like, let's get a girl from China, and we'll get a boy from Costa Rica, and we'll get a girl from Africa, and we'll have, like, the UN at our table. It'll be great. <laughs> and we just knew everybody. It was very comfortable, and we thought it would be great as the girls get older if they had a shared experience when they get to be about 15, 16, and they start to really become self-aware of their origin. So that's why we did it. And just as a sidebar, the two things that were interesting... One, the downside is, well, why don't you have any American kids? And Because I don't like Americans. <laughs> and then um, they would say, do you have any of your own kids? Yes, these. And then they would say, uh, why did you adopt? And I was like, I don't know. Let me look at my family. Religious weirdo, gun nut, biker, boozer, dead tooth, too many cats, the guy who talks to his truck. Hmm. <laughs> I think I adopted because genetically my balls are full of poison. <laughs> Don't laugh. This is serious. This is storytelling. You can't laugh. So then you go to June of 2002, and I walk into the bedroom, and I say, uh, so, do you want to do this? And she said, yeah, let's do it. And we were talking about going downstairs to tell our kids that we were getting divorced, which you never want to do. It's awful. And we never set out to get divorced. Just things build if you're not smart. And you find yourself like, well, it really bothers me when they do that, but I'm not going to say anything because, frankly, I just don't want to go through the argument that will result if I say it, so I'm just going to let it go. And then, well, we have a kid now, so we have a two-year pause on everything because we have to get this kid booted up and running. And then, oh, we have another kid, so we just bought two more years. And I really 
hate it when I do that, but I'm not going to talk about it. Should I tell them that my chest tightens when I see their headlights coming in the driveway or just, <laughs> nah, I don't fuck. Who are they always texting and laughing at late at night? I don't text anybody late at night and laugh. And I just, at one point, you just find yourself waking up in the morning and going, hey, um, two things. I'm, I'm going gonna, gonna to go to the store today if you need anything. And um, the other thing is, who the fuck are you? And that's just her side. But we made a really solid attempt to stay parents and not, as we said to them, we're no longer husband and wife, but we're still mom and dad. And we'll always be mom and dad. And we decided to get divorced and then spent six months pretending to not be getting divorced in the house so the kids could get out of school and we could set up everything we needed to do. We talked to people, we found out what to do, and by the time we told them, I had already bought my house, my house was only five minutes away, we got to tell them, break the news, crush them, (laughs) break their hearts, then drive them up to my house, let them pick out their rooms, and in true kids' fashion, my oldest daughter said, since you're getting divorced, can we go to McDonald's? That's <laughs> awesome. And we worked really hard out of that tremendous failure that was our failure, mine mostly, to not fuck up our kids. It was about two months after I had moved out and the kids were bummed out. I still saw them every day, but they were bummed out. I uh, found a kitten under an abandoned house. You're probably wondering what I was doing under an abandoned house. (laughs) It's a longer story. But it's the only way I can come. (laughs) Stop laughing! Everybody has sexual fantasies. I pretend I'm a lonely orkin man. (laughs) Long story longer, this little kitten about the size of my hand. And I brought it home and I said to my daughter, look what I found. And that little kitten, she told me later, broke it for her, the depression. And they all love this kitten. A month after that, I found another cat in the parking lot of a VFW in Azusa. (laughs) I can't tell you why I was there. I could, but I'd have to kill you after. So we got to this point where my daughter had two cats, my ex-wife had a little dog that she adored, and I had two dogs at my house. And now we go to two weeks ago. I had gotten my oldest daughter a kitten for her birthday. So now she is a cat nut. She went trick-or-treating as a crazy cat lady. She's a super funny kid. So now she had three cats and a dog, and I had two dogs. I wasn't there, and I I don't know how it happened, but I got a call. You got to get down here right away. I only lived four and a half minutes, so I was there right away, and somehow the kitten came out of the laundry with a load of clothes. The next day, One of the other cats just fucked off, probably wisely, thinking it was next. (laughs) But 
the kids were fucking devastated. I had to get it out, and it's... Having cats is like living with a small suicide cult. <laughs> they just seem obsessed with finding ways to die. R-A-T-P-O, I don't care what it is, I'm having a bowl, you know. <laughs> so we got her a dog. She wanted a big dog. She wanted a German Shepherd, and my ex-wife said no when I was younger. A German Shepherd attacked my dog. I saw it, it was very traumatic. I don't want to get a German Shepherd, but we felt so awful about the kitten that we went, all of us, down to the German Shepherd rescue downtown. And we found this Siberian Husky, and we brought my wife's dog, and they did the compatibility test, and everything worked out great, and they did a cat test, just the perfect dog, brought it home, and within 24 hours, it had killed my wife's dog. And I then had to bring it back to the rescue. And my wife is, my ex-wife, I still call her my wife because she still tells me what to do all the time. (laughs) So she's traumatized. My daughter hates me because I wouldn't let her say goodbye to the dog because she was hysterical. And I'm not going to let a hysterical girl hug a dog I don't trust unless I don't like the girl. (laughs) So that dog went back. We ended up going away for the weekend together. All of us took a two-day trip. And by the end of the weekend, people had pulled themselves together. And it's two weeks now, and everybody is kind of slowly coming back to normal. But we did that together. And, And the point is, we fucked up and got divorced. But in our failure, we still managed to be a tremendous success. Every success that you have tends to come out of failure. That's why that quote from uh, Churchill says, uh, means so much to me. Success is going from failure to failure gracefully. And if anybody is giving away cats or dogs, we're good. (laughs) We're good for now. Anyway, thank you very much. That's all. and rabbits would reside in fancy little houses and be dressed in shoes and hats and trousers in a world of my own all the flowers would have very extra special powers they could sit and talk to me for
this is Risk. This is Kat Edmondson behind me now. And I'll tell you, a, a couple of friends of mine, Smith Galtney and Monica Lynch, have been making these playlists on Spotify of really off the beaten track, older music, you know, real deep cuts kind of stuff. And these playlists have just been getting me through this time. I love taking long walks and listening to these strange old songs. I have to say, if I had the power to magically change the world, I would probably have a couple of priorities over putting cats and rabbits in trousers and making the flowers talk. But hey, Cat Edmondson, you too, you. Before Cat, we heard from Dana Gould, who you can find on Twitter, at Dana Gould. And before Dana, we heard from Risk fan Elizabeth Willis over there in London, sharing a little radio anecdote of hers. Remember, you can send us your little anecdotes. If you go to the Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group on Facebook, the pinned post explains how to send these to us, or you could just write to me at kevin at risk-show.com and I can give you guidance there. Guys, we're trying to spread the word about next week's episode of Risk. Uh, We're going to have our second cannibalism story on that show. Carrie Kenny Silver of Reno 911 and The State will be on that show. I'll be telling a brand new story on that show. It's a just jam-packed episode, and we're trying to alert the press. Hey, this is a really special one. We really think you should pay attention. So pay close attention, look for it, and alert your friends about it when it comes out next Tuesday. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries... If you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance. There's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Let's get back to the stories. In a little bit, we're going to hear from one of our all-time favorite storytellers, Richard Cardillo, who has told some classics on the show before. The story Richard will be sharing is one that he shared uh, a couple of live streams ago. So, you know, it'll have that unique sound of how those sound a little bit different because there's only a few people reacting. The other storytellers that were attending the show, you can hear their reactions, their applause, but you can't hear all the hundreds of people that were watching the live stream reacting. But before that, another one of these radio anecdotes from Risk fan Vic Crailer. Here is Vic now with a story we call Even Now. University in a scientific research division, and there are parts of my job which are considered essential because grants power the university, and the work that I do is the meat and potatoes of those grants. Luckily, most of the work I can do at home, but at the height of the pandemic, I got permission to go into the office, into the lab, to quickly prep some equipment for an upcoming survey. My boss mentioned that I may have some issues with security, but in that case that I was just to have them call him and he would verify that I was allowed to be there. And in my experience, it's it's good to drop a man's name. When you're entering an area that's restricted for any reason, be it safety or sensitive information. So I have this well-practiced voice of calm authority, polite yet firm, when speaking to generally men that question me when I'm just trying to do my job. So I'm at the university and outside is a colleague of mine, I'll call him Nick, and Nick is a mid-aged white guy on the technical staff while I'm on the research end. The function of our positions often overlap, so we actually work together every once in a while, which is nice. Nick, though, is talking to a man that I do not recognize, but they appear to be having a friendly conversation. So I wave to Nick, and I go to head inside uh, when the other man's demeanor just shifts dramatically, and he says, what do you think that you're doing? I assume this guy is security, so in my polite yet firm tone, I explain who I am, what I am doing, and that he can call my boss if he would like to verify that information. He freaks out. (laughs) It turns out that he wasn't security, but the head of the entire department. I had just never met him before. Honestly, I didn't even know his name. And he was highly insulted that I had the audacity to suggest that anybody but him could grant me access to the building. You don't know what you're doing. Don't you understand? We're under a lockdown. This is unsafe. You're being reckless. How dare you? In the end, though, he still let me into the building. Like I said, there are parts of my job that are essential to the university's finances, and he had to know that. After he left, it was just Nick and I, and I was asking Nick, so what's what's going on? What's with you? And he's like, oh, you know, same as you, just checking on equipment. And I was like, oh, did you have to go through the same uh, rigor and roll? And he's like, no, he just asked me what I was doing here, and I told him, and 
that was kind of that. And <laughs> I mean, Nick's a good guy. He's good at his job. I just, I know that there are so many people that are going through absolutely traumatic situations right now. And my heart goes out to them. I feel for them so badly. And this in the end is not that big of a deal. It's just everyday sexism. But it's interesting that even in a pandemic, sexism just doesn't take a break. So here from the Catskills, let's please welcome Richard Cardillo. <laughs> Thank you all. Thanks so much to Kevin and everybody at risk for helping keep us sane through all of this lunacy. I first met Peter at the car wash. Now, this particular car wash isn't exactly a place you take your Subaru for a waxing. The car wash was the nickname for the back room of a really seedy, sleazy bar in New York called The Spike. I had recently left 14 years in a monastery as a celibate monk trying to pray away my gay, and I couldn't do it, so I left. And that's why I was in that back room. I found Pete, Pete found me, and we had a ball in there. I was going at it just like a monk who had a vow of celibacy for 14 years. <laughs> <laughs> we finish in the back room. We go to the bar. Pete's buying me beer after beer. He invites me back to his place, and I go. And it was wonderful. It was everything I wanted and more. And within four short months... Pete and I started our relationship of 18 wonderful years together. It was a marvel. Pete was this force of nature. He had social activism inside of him like no one I knew. He was born and raised in Selma, Alabama, right at the cusp of the civil rights movement. So he had activism coursing through his veins. And he'd protest for anything. No nukes better health care for people, uh, better wages for people. He was out there and he dragged me along to every one of those protests. And I'd be at his side and I loved it. At the end of those protests, he'd invite some of his colleagues, his compadres, back to our apartment for a meal. And the centerpiece of every one of those meals was my bread. One of the things I left the monastery with was this ability to make bread and it became my passion. I would make bread for everything and Pete wanted to instill that and keep that going. So he had my bread be the center of every one of the meals that we had together. It was great. I was going at it making bread for him. He was going at it trying to change the world the best he can. About a year into our relationship Pete developed this real bad case of pneumonia in the middle of the winter. He got over it. Then he started getting neuropathy in both his legs. Then his eyesight started failing. And we kind of saw the handwriting on the wall. Pete had never gotten tested for HIV AIDS. So we both went together. And sure enough, he tested positive for HIV AIDS. He fought it like a trooper. The doctor got his health back as best as he could. 
And he joined another protest group, those wonderful warriors from ACT UP. And we were on the streets together, militant as can be. And after every one of those marches, the ACT UP members came back to our apartment and there was more bread. Pete even wanted to make hospitality the center of our relationship. So once a week, he insisted on inviting homeless people from the Lower East Side where we lived over to our house for a meal with that bread. Very shortly after that, one other horrible thing started happening. Pete's mental health started deteriorating. He had this horrible, horrible opportunistic infection that was called toxoplasmosis. It affects lesions and areas of the brain dealing with mood. And he just would sink into these deep, deep, dark depressions. And he would cycle in and out of psychiatric hospitals. And I saw this love of my life, this spark, this person who gave energy to everybody just fading away. And I didn't know how to go on with that. In August of 2012, Pete had just gotten out from spending five months committed to a state psychiatric hospital. He came home. I thought he was getting better. He was going every day to day treatments, and I went to work on one particular day. I gave him this prolonged kiss goodbye, told him I'd be cooking that night for dinner, and went off to work. And about noon, I get this phone call on my cell phone. And it's Pete. And I hear all of this traffic and wind. And I said, Pete, where the fuck are you? And he said, listen, Richard, I just wanted to call, let you know how much I love you, and I'll see you tonight. And he hung up. I didn't feel good about that phone call. So much so that I just left work and went home to wait for him. And about... Three to four hours after that, two police officers were at my front door and they gave me the really ugly news that Pete had jumped from the George Washington Bridge, that they had recovered his body, and I had to go with them to identify the body, and I just collapsed. When Pete died, a big chunk of me died with him. I just closed down. I stopped going to work. I stopped talking to family and friends. I became a hermit in my own house. It was really my first taste of what we're going through now with social distancing. I just didn't want anybody in my life. About six months after that, on this frigid, cold December morning, I woke up to make some food and I realized I had no food in the house. But I had flour, water, salt, and yeast. So I did what I knew how to do. I made bread. And old habits die hard. I made a lot of bread. I made eight baguettes. And I ripped the end off of one of them, ate it, and immediately felt really, really stupid. The rest of these loaves were just going to go sour and go stale. And I had nobody to share it with. The next morning, I forced myself to put on my winter coat and my boots, and I trudged the eight blocks to the Bowery Mission to just donate this bread to homeless men. I opened the door to this center, and the guy at the front desk starts bellowing at me, hold on, no way, Department of Health rules, we can't accept food donations from anybody. 
So I left there feeling even more stupid. And I went to the park on Christie and Stanton to sit on a park bench in the snow and just have a real good crying jag. But I stopped and I turned around and I realized four men from the Bowery Mission had followed me into the park. Whew. One of the men circles me, looks me straight in the eye, and points. And he simply asked, you got bread? <laughs> I opened the bag of baguettes, took out the bread, broke it, gave it to each of the men, and they devoured it. Not a word was spoken. Not a thank you, nothing. They're finishing up, I'm putting the bag away, and I get up to go. And that same man came up to me, pointed to me again, and said, you're going to be back next week? And I said, I would try. The following Sunday, I showed up with eight loaves of sourdough bread, and the guys were already waiting for me. And this time, there was an awful lot more talking and laughing and sharing. They were connecting with their bread memories. One guy said, I remember living down south, and my grandma would make this cornbread in a skillet in the oven. I said, well, I make that kind of cornbread in a skillet. I'll make that for you next week. And another guy said, I remember when I was on the Lower East Side, I'd run home for Sabbath, and I'd rip a piece of the challah and get it before anybody else. I said, well, I make challah. I'll make you some challah bread. In the ensuing months, there were an awful lot more requests for bread and an awful lot more fun. My moniker became Bread Man, and I'd be a block away from that park, and I'd hear that chant go up, Yo, Bread Man, what you got? And I'd hold it up and say, It's Chocolate Bobka Week. <laughs> Yo, Bread Man, what you got? Today's Pumpernickel Day. And we'd eat, and we'd commiserate, and we talk about the world, they got to know me, and I got to know them very, very well. And there was this change in me. I became lighter. I went back to work. I started laughing again. I entered back into the world, and I really had nobody to thank for that but these men who made me see that I am one of many. On this beautiful, clear, blue sky May morning, I go into the park and I hear, Yo, bread man, what you got? I hold up the satchel and I said, A whole lot of ciabatta. One guy said, Ah, shit. I had a hankering for your focaccia bread. And we all started laughing. Another guy said, Not I. I've become partial to your country pond rustique. And we howled even louder with that one. Another guy bellows out, Yo, bread man, you performed a miracle. You converted these crack addicts into connoisseurs. <laughs> and we just died on the ground laughing. It was crazy. That was not a miracle. There was a miracle that did happen, though. It was the multiplication of the loaves. I wasn't making more bread. They were sharing it out more with more people. And I still say the bigger miracle was the miracle inside of me. I had become one of a team now, one of many. And it made me think back of how Pete wanted to change the world and wanted to change minds. And I stopped and I said, my mind was changed. Now I can help others to change the world. And I'm pretty sure Pete would have loved it. <laughs> Thank you. Well,
to the sad eyed misinterpreted hung up child of clay. So the drunken poet's pretty words didn't help you find your way. Was it your mistake for thinking he was born before his time? Or was it his for thinking he might save you with his flimsy rhyme? Teetotal Tommy took the total tea. Black cat's backing up a big oak tree. TikTok's taking out a tune on time. Last words looking for a line to rhyme. Saw fish swimming in the sea, saw sea, but me. Well, I'm only looking at it. That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Mickey Newberry behind me now, and we just heard from Richard Cardillo. Richard can be found on all the socials at Richard Cardillo. And before that, we heard a little anecdote by Risk fan Vic Crailer. Once again, don't forget that May 8th, May 8th at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, is the next Risk live stream show. This is an extraordinary cast for this show. Jeff Zimmerman, Jack Perry, Sandy Marks, and Lily B. These are all big, heavy hitters coming to do the show on May 8th at 9 p.m. Eastern. So get your tickets at risk-show.com slash tour. Don't forget the little cameo videos I'm making for people. These little video messages that I can customize for a friend of yours or for you. You just go to cameo.com slash the Kevin Allison. These can be, you know, a couple minutes long, super silly or super sincere. Either way, I'm having a blast doing them. You can also sign up for half hour or hour long sessions with me for actual storytelling training or any other sort of artistic guidance, or even just mentoring around things like, um, for example, kink and BDSM and all that sort of thing, look for that at kevinallison.com. And if you want storytelling training from the best faculty out there, the people who help prepare the storytellers for all of these risk shows, go to thestorystudio.org and you will find all kinds of online classes there. Storytelling for performance, storytelling for business, storytelling for personal growth. We even do corporate workshops and we've worked with some huge clients like Google and Pfizer and Citibank and American Express. You can find all of that at thestorystudio.org. Be sure to follow us on all the socials on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We're at Risk Show. On Twitter and Instagram, I'm at the Kevin Allison. And you can always find anything else you want to know about us at risk-show.com. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. <laughs>